I think one of the biggest things we have to face as a parent is what to do when behavior happens that seems like it's just coming out of left field. Because if we wanted to be in left field, we would have gone into baseball and not parenting. But here we are trying to catch the behavior ball, racing against a kid, trying to score a home run and driving their parent up the wall. But the thing about our children and our families is that we have to shift to get out of this idea that our kids are on the opposing team from us and that we're trying to do this whole three strikes and you're out because it's just not a thing. We're all on the same team here. So how do we make those shifts and how do we make sense out of what our kids are doing and then be able to step into that without losing our own cool, much less our sanity? Hey, I'm Annabeth. I'm a certified trauma recovery coach and host of the Safe Haven Parenting Podcast. I help single parents raising children impacted by trauma find tools and support to raise compassionate, resilient, and thriving kids. Today, we're going to do a deep dive on how to understand behavior, how to respond to it, and all without losing our cool or making things worse, even if we haven't been successful at that in the past. All through my school years, I felt like a failure at everything. I hated ballet, got relegated to the backstage in musical theater, couldn't master the piano or banjo to save my life. Yes, I did say banjo. I was a disaster when it came to art. And the one time I attempted to play sports at about the age of seven, I wound up on a team that was made up of the coach's daughter and all of her closest friends who'd all been playing since they could toddle and been on the same team for about as long, leaving my uncoordinated and unexperienced self literally in left field or on the bench. Sorry to my athletic-loving parents that despite how this episode began, it is not, in fact, going to be around sports puns and analogies. So, since I couldn't lose myself in any of those things, I lost myself in books instead. I fell in love with history and people and stories. The first time I learned about the Titanic was not from Leonardo and Kate and their doomed epic movie, but it was in the Dear America book series, and it's fascinated me ever since. See, sometimes we think we know all there is to know about something based on our experiences, education, and background. But we just can't know what we don't know. We can't think through something that has never occurred to us or question our biases when we don't even know that they're there in the first place. If the people behind the Titanic had planned for both what they did know and what they couldn't know, a lot of lives would likely have been saved, maybe even the majority of them. It would still have sunk, but they could have at least had the needed number of lifeboats. They didn't know how to avoid the icebergs on the first trip, but they made a conscious decision to not be prepared. Parenting through behavior challenges can be like that. 
the research that we have around children and development and how they grow and learn, that's our lifeboat. We can choose to either partner with it and sail prepared or ignore it and sail anyways. When kids act up, we often react to what we can see, the top of the iceberg, if you will, but not what's below the surface. But make no mistake, despite what we can see of our children's actions, what we can see is not what is going to sink the ship, theirs or our own, any more than it did the Titanic. So how do we make sure that we have our life rafts in place or avoid the behavior icebergs altogether? Here's the thing about behavior. Anywhere behavior happens, relationships, schools, religious communities, childhood, we've always looked at what's happening that we don't like, and then we decide what we're going to do to that person to get the behavior to stop. The first lifeboat we need is changing how we view behavior. Instead of seeing it as good or bad, or the child as good or bad, we want to start seeing that it is not about what the child is doing. It is about what the child is lacking every time. There are two main things that children are lacking when we see behavior. These are, the first one is um, basic human needs. Shelter, food, physical and emotional safety, health, security, stability. If those needs aren't met, they literally can't succeed at managing themselves, their environment, or their relationships. Usually these are simplified for children in day-to-day life. Um, Picture a child who has five basic needs. And just like eating one meal a day isn't going to keep you full for that entire day, neither is meeting these needs once going to keep them met. Once they get depleted, that's when you start to see behavior. The five needs are food and water, the need for calm, which amounts to both physical and emotional rest, physical connection, do they feel like they matter, they're seen and heard and not just loved, but also enjoyed, emotional connection, do they have a way to let off steam with someone that they trust, as well as feeling celebrated, affirmed, and enjoyed, and consistency, not just in schedules and routines, but in how their other needs are being met on a consistent basis, as well as their level of safety and their access to consistent support. These five needs are vital to children succeeding. Children need a support system just like their adults do, and ideally we are that first taste of a healthy support system that can offer care, empathy, and attunement. Well, it's usually a good idea to look at the big picture. When it comes to children's needs, we really want to zero in on the small picture. Like, overall, sure, they have food and shelter. They likely hear us saying, love you. But just having a roof over our heads and food in our bellies doesn't always keep us from having bad days any more than it does for our kids. It's in the minute here. Just being in the same house with someone doesn't solve loneliness. 
It takes intentional conversation and time spent enjoying each other. Just telling someone you love them doesn't actually sink in unless you are showing it. And learning how to hold space for our children's emotional up and downs is what actually meets the need there. Emotions are morally neutral. They're not good, they're not bad, and the person feeling them is not good or bad. But when there is joy with no one to share it with, or sadness with no one to feel it with, that need for emotional connectedness isn't met. When trauma comes into play that has threatened any of these needs, you'll see it actually become more difficult for them to stay met because they need safety to be consistent enough for their brain to say, okay, you can let your guard down now. Trauma causes their guard to always be up and that's exhausting on the child. It makes them very sensitive to stress and it means that we have to work twice as hard because their buckets empty that much faster. Like they have leaks that children with more typical childhoods don't have. This can look like explosive children who lose it at the drop of a hat. Or it can look like quiet and perfectly behaved children who never seem to be upset or express any emotion or feeling at all. Humans use behavior to cope with what's happening around them and inside them at any age. When it's misbehavior, that's a form of what's called maladaptive coping, which means coping skills that aren't helpful or healthy for the child or those around them, but are there because they don't have adaptive coping skills, which is ways to manage stress that is healthy and safe for them and those around them. It's a way of that child creating safety for themselves, and it's not intentional. The thing that children are lacking is a brain. No, I don't mean like the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. What I mean is that the brain isn't fully developed until a person is about the age of 26. Depending on where they're at in that development, the parts of their brain needed to succeed is either not there at all or it's too early yet to be consistently useful. That isn't to say that they are idiotic or less than or that it's a negative in any way. But what's absolutely vital here to understand is that it's not their fault or intentional. Children develop all the same way, but not all at the same time. Our brains actually develop not because of time, but because of the experiences we've had over time. Like, we hear this about um, babies crying. So when a baby cries, the parent responds to that cry by picking it up and saying, I hear you, little one. You're upset or scared or hungry. I'm here with you. It's okay to cry. I can help. The brain then wires to that until eventually they have the language to say that to themselves and to their caregiver to express what they need without crying. In other words, they've learned to self-soothe. That is development in action. 
It takes about two years before that part of the brain needed for self-soothing even exists. And another two years of consistent caring responses to develop and another two to four years before it even begins to stabilize. So a typically developing child is between the ages of six and eight before they even have the ability to self-soothe. But only if they've had six to eight years of experience having that modeled to them through presence, acknowledgement, and empathy. The brain develops through this thing called mirroring, mirroring, (laughs) us mirroring their experiences back to them in soft and kind tones and our children mirroring what they see us doing as adults as we go through our day-to-day life. We can tie behavior to a child who easily throws a block when they are mad at two, who is able to use their words at nine to the time that passes. But it's really just consistent conversation we are having with them, modeling what to do when they experience stress. We are mirroring that to them. See, we used to think that telling a child they couldn't feel something or do something is what gave them the ability to manage their emotions. But now we know it's the the opposite. We teach them to manage by allowing them to feel and showing them how to process it. Just like we can't hand a five-year-old an advanced calculus book and expect them to succeed at high school level math, we can't do that with other developmental-based behaviors. Now, what happens when trauma enters the picture is that those experiences the child should be having to develop and grow are now replaced with experiences that threaten a child's big picture needs for safety and security. When those two things are shaken, development actually halts. As the brain is now putting all of its energy into surviving instead of developing. So now we have the nine-year-old who didn't have nine years worth of safe experiences, but now is being expected to act like they did, but they can't. Even if trauma wasn't there, If they never had a caregiver who was mirroring their experiences and attuned with empathy, they might not have learned how to do anything but shove those emotions down deep and try and ignore them. Or to numb and not feel anything at all. They don't have any healthier coping skills. And just like emotions are morally neutral, so is development. Where a child is at developmentally is not good or bad. It only is, and it's valid. They're valid. And they're still worthy of kindness, respect, and empathy. It's normal and it's human to be (laughs) variable in our development. We all have differences. Even as adults, if we as an adult did not have access to that mirroring from our caregivers at home or at school, those pieces aren't there fully for us either. 
that's just normal. And we aren't able to give that peace to our kids. That's okay. This whole thing is such a process. And we just want to set the intention to lean into this and not let guilt or shame in the door because we don't know what we never had access to. You're still a good enough parent. So how do we handle the behavior then? How do we handle or how do we support not just development, but um, healthy development? Have you ever heard the expression canary in a coal mine? The oft used expression that something is showing us what isn't quite right. I'm still not really over where it actually stems from which is the inhumane practice of carrying these birds into coal mines to detect carbon monoxide and poisonous gases in the air, which allowed miners to evacuate before they themselves were affected. Behavior is that canary, always. I know it can display as rebellious or disrespectful, attention-seeking, Dumb, thoughtless, mean, rude, whatever. But it is always that canary. We have to make a conscious and careful decision when seeing how our children behave and make sure we are not punishing that canary for reacting to the fumes, but that we are dealing with the fumes that are causing the problems to begin with. It goes back to that tip of the iceberg not being what actually sank the ship. When we label behavior with a judgment statement, and then we handle it based on that perception, we can totally miss what's going to sink the ship or kill the canary. And there are two foundational pieces that we need to do this. The first is that we have to address our own mindset biases, and judgments about children. The second foundational piece is that we have to identify what we may not have had access to ourselves and then heal those wounds or learn what we never had a chance to. Sometimes we have to start by reparenting ourselves before we can parent our children. And then We take those two foundational pieces and then we use a cornerstone to hold the foundational pieces together. And that cornerstone is safety. Felt safety is required for mental, physical, and relational health. Our kiddos worrying over the safety of their things, their body, their connection with us, or their free will will directly impact them negatively later on in life. Our goals as parents are all the same. We want kids who are capable adults, who make good, responsible choices, and aren't knocked down by whatever life throws their way. And we want to see echoes of that while they are children. And research shows us how we get there. It takes the guesswork out of it completely. We get there by establishing safety, both emotional and physical, Teaching them how to identify what they feel, which is emotional intelligence. Teaching them what to do with how they feel, which is emotional literacy. 
consistent connection, which is being in relationship with them. Collaboration, making sure everyone's needs are balanced and met as a circular family unit instead of a hierarchy-based family unit. Accountability, where problems are seen and addressed both for the parent and for the child. So it's not just the child, it's the parent too. And autonomy, which is personal choice. But even despite these things, you can have all of these things in place and behavior is still going to happen. These things don't erase that. They don't get rid of stress in your child's life. But what they do is they lessen the stress that's coming from within the home. And then they give us a framework to work with the behavior as a launching pad into what we want for our children. Those goals of capable adults who make good, responsible choices and can manage when life is hard. Um, If we know that's the framework, we can then compare our responses to the behavior by asking ourselves if it meets the goal of safety, honors everyone's needs and voice, and make space for emotions, empathy, and consent. Simplified, we acknowledge why the behavior is happening. We look at what need isn't being met, and then we help them compassionately meet it. You're going to spend the energy either dealing with the behavior or shifting the environment and meeting needs. So you have to decide where you want to spend that time. But the great thing about shifting that environment is that it tackles the development piece, whereas consequences don't. They just punish the child for not having the development piece in place. If you're not sure how to figure out the need, you want to look at how it's displaying. If it's coming off as entitled or defiant, they're likely feeling disconnected from you. If it's coming off as rude, it's probably sleep or food. If it's coming off as mean or aggressive, it's likely also sleep or food. Sometimes it can be pain too, like a headache or a stomach ache. And if they're coming off as distant, clumsy, clingy, uncaring, or mindless, it's probably sadness or feeling overwhelmed or needing a place to just let go and be a kid. Here's the thing about all of this though. Don't get overwhelmed and caught up in playing 50 questions. If you're seeing it, just run through a simple acknowledge, food, connection, fun, rest checklist. That's five things based off of their five basic needs. You can play Dr. Phil if you want, but really, (laughs) if you're seeing behavior, acknowledge it and empathize with what's happening. Talk through it or redirect it and come back to it later. Eat something, drink something. Connect, have fun together, check in with their hearts, listen to their woes, find something to do that brings you all joy, or go somewhere with friends if you need to. This is self-care and community care. Rest. This doesn't mean a timeout. This means practicing that self-care piece together or practicing restorative rest that involves getting away from the schedules and chore lists like going to the beach or the woods, somewhere you can just be. Pulling out art supplies or chalk, sitting outside, blowing bubbles, whatever. 
We just want to be careful not to force any of these things as punishment or consequences, but have the intention to prioritize mindfulness, co-regulation, and intentional relationships. You can do all of that in less than 30 minutes if you need to, or spread it out. Maybe it's too late to do something and you just need to get to bed. Reconnect in the morning or put on a book on tape as you fall asleep or whatever. Like, you know your kids and you can trust yourself to figure this out in a way that works for you. Remember that behavior is simply how the child is coping with stress. Nothing more, nothing less. Decrease that stress, meet the need. And through meeting that need, develop development will happen and they'll increase their ability to manage that stress. Acknowledgement, food, connection, fun, rest. That's the secret to all behavior, literally. (laughs) It might not be instant. It might take months due to that development piece, but keep intentionally moving towards this. Doesn't have to be perfect to be effective. It only has to be connected to be effective. Through this, you're going to see things like emotional intelligence grow. You'll foster compassion and kindness. You'll teach empathy and respect. And you'll build a foundation for mental and physical health for years to come. Best of all, you might actually start enjoying parenting and your relationship with your kids, and you don't have to dread it so much. Now, if it doesn't after a long period of time, that's when it's a good idea to reach out for further professional support for either yourself or for your child. There have absolutely been times when I followed this and doubted my parenting, doubted the research, questioned my sanity, There have absolutely been times when I've hated being a parent. The goal here isn't perfection, it's realism. We are most likely all coming into this with old patterns and beliefs and speaking a different parenting language than the one that we knew before. It takes a lot of courage to change that and consistency and grit It's not all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows, especially in the beginning or right out of trauma. Development is constantly shifting and changing and growing, and sometimes we need them to be farther than they are, and it's not fun when it's not there yet, and that's okay. Next week, we're going to tackle what to do when we hate parenting and how to survive to get to the place where we can implement these skills if they feel unreachable to you now. While I believe that it's attainable to enjoy being a parent, that doesn't mean that the journey to get there is always enjoyable. Sometimes it's exhausting, sometimes it's overwhelming, there's hard moments even when we do get there. You get to feel about your parenting journey however you feel about it. There's no judgment, there's no shame there. Sometimes it just is, sometimes it's just the season of life that we're in. And we just happen to be a parent in that season of life. 
I hope this episode was helpful to you. If you have a second, I'd love it if you'd hit that subscribe button and leave me a rating. I'm really looking forward to the episode next week. We're going to get real and raw and honest. And I'm sure if you've been in that space where you hated being a parent, it's going to be something that you relate to and enjoy. Until next time. <laughs>